The Bible reading for today is found in the book of Nehemiah, both verses chapter one and two, which you can find on page 681 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you'd like to follow along. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then moving down to chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Thanks so much, Sharon. Thank you so much. Good morning, High Point Church. How are you guys? On the morning before the big uh, Packers-Seahawks game. Amen. Um, this is the second week in our series. Good, that works. Just checking out on my tools so I can get going. Uh, in our uh, a series in the book of Nehemiah. Um, last week, if you were here, Nick said that Nehemiah is the story of how God rebuilds the people. Now, the broken down walls 
the, the dilapidated buildings within the city of Jerusalem, the disgrace of the exiles who have come back to Jerusalem and the despair that they have uh, and the shame they face from the surrounding nations that taunt them and take advantage of them. All of those are just an, a, a, uh, are emblematic of a broken down relationship they have with their God. The wonderful thing about that, though, is that God is faithful. Even when we tear down our relationships with him, our relationship with him, even when we tear down relationships in our families or at work with our friends, God has given us resources to rebuild, spiritual resources that are sure, tried, and true, that will work every time. And so today, I want to focus on this one idea. This is the main theme. God grants us the resources that we need to rebuild. Um, and there'll be four main points in this sermon, that God grants us the burden to rebuild, God grants us the, the guidance from him, specific and clear instructions to, to rebuild. God grants us the favor, and I'll be using the word favor and grace interchangeably, speaking of God's divine favor or divine blessing on, on his children. God grants us the favor to rebuild. And then lastly, God grants us the guts or the courage that, we're gonna, that it takes when we've made... Um, when our society has created such a um, damage that you've got to rally many people alongside you and endure opposition, God grants you the courage to rebuild as well. So let's jump in this. God grants you the burden to rebuild. Last week, you remember, if you were here with us, uh, early in the sermon, Pastor Nick said this, so I'm carrying it through. He says, overcoming starts with sharing God's longing for our flourishing. Uh, that's the burden. Um, God uh, doesn't want our families, our churches, our institutions, business, friendships to be uh, torn down, especially our relationship with him. And so he's created a way. What he does is he creates a, a burden on us if we belong to Christ and even if we don't, and I'll jump in that in a minute. He creates a longing for difference and a change. This longing is the burden. Now, Nehemiah's burden is based on three very specific realities. Three very specific things lead him to get to the place where, of brokenness. That's how this is referred to in, in Psalms 51, a broken and contrite heart. So there's three things that are going on here. One is that Nehemiah and all the people have sinned. They've transgressed the law. And in chapter one, he just states it plain. As he prays, as he mourns, as he fasts, as he considers what's going on, he comes to the conclusion that I have sinned and all my forefathers and all my people have sinned. And then the second phase is that the destruction that's all around, our, our exile, are coming back with meager resources. The disgrace from the Ammonites and the Samaritans who are the nations around, all of this is due to the sin. In fact, God is actually keeping his word that he would discipline them if they, um, if they didn't follow his laws and commands. And so a destruction is a result of their sin, but then there's this great hope and as Nehemiah remembers the word of God and the promises of God, the great hope is that God would restore the people and their city and their worship if they would come to him wholeheartedly. That's the great hope. And that creates the burden. And I really like the way David, the king in Israel, had a very similar experience. You remember, some of you will remember the story of him in, in Bathsheba. David is a king, it's time for war. He sees a beautiful woman that's not his wife. He takes her, they have an affair, and then he kills the woman's husband to, to hide the fact that she's pregnant. God sends another prophet to, to him, and he has to admit that he's the sinner, he's the great sinner. And he gets to a place of burden for his own soul. 
And the scripture defines it this way. In Psalm 51. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. Restore to me, verse, verse 12, the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This, you see, the, the, what creates the burden, which is so crucial for everything that happens, nothing here happens without this God-shaped and formed burden. Later on in this text, he describes it, Nehemiah describes it as that God put it on his heart in order to do this work for, this, for the people. So God is orchestrating this, this, this whole situation and the, the, the things that we need to recognize is that the, the two experiences that create a brokenness are devastation over your sin and eagerness for restoration. You should write that down. Devastation over your sin and an eagerness for restoration is what creates the burden. And so Nehemiah has this burden. It's, it's God orchestrated and it's necessary in order to do what God wants to do. Because if you're going to rebuild a broken church, a broken family, a, a broken relationship, when we tear things down through our sin, the rebuilding that needs to happen first is a rebuilding of the heart. I know when things are going wrong in my own household, I want to try to fix the cosmetics. You know, can I fix it with money? Can I fix it with service? But what God is looking for is he's trying to fix your heart to get you to recognize what is true and what is false and to get you back on the path of righteousness. And I'm, uh, for some of us, that takes time. And that's why in Nehemiah's case, it took days of mourning and fasting because rebuilding the heart is not like uh, 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 re rebuilding the pews. I can, I can bring in a capable carpenters and they can start working on a, a project, it'll be done. But rebuilding the heart that is damaged and mangled by sin takes days of me sorting through what's going on and how I got to this place. It may take fasting and weeping before I can admit and confess the situation. And when it comes to burdens, um, these, they're very typical, they're crucial. Um, the first burden many of us encounter is the burden we have over our own souls when we come to Christ. I, indeed, I certainly have this. As a young man of 23, reflecting on a college years wasted in partying and so forth, and remembering, though I, though I didn't have a saving faith, but remembering God and his promises, the, a, a tremendous burden over my soul is what caused me to come to Christ. And some of you had an experience like that. Now, I know not everyone will come to faith like that, but some of you will have that kind of experience where there's an awesome weeping over what you're doing, the damages you, you're bringing to yourself and to the people around you. And that causes you to turn to Christ. I had a very good friend who I went to college with and worked with for American, at American Family for 20 years. And after about 25 years in his marriage, uh, his wife came to him and things were broken. And the way he was treating her and their children wasn't working. And they would argue and go back and forth, and this lasted over a couple of years. And then he kind of called me in desperation. I didn't know anything about that. This guy's a good friend. He's living in Colorado. I'm living here in Madison. And when we're going through, oftentimes we don't even tell our best friends, especially if there's distance. So I wasn't clear that this was going on. But by the time he called me, he was like, Lloyd, my marriage is on the brink. I love this woman. I love my children. And I'm ready to fix it. But it took years, in his case, of turning this over and counting the cost. What did I do? How can I make this better? Before he was ready to receive godly instruction that actually turned his marriage around. And so this year they'll be celebrating 30 years of marriage. Their kids are, are growing up and flourishing. But, it, but it, call, it came as a result of a burden over what he was doing to damage his family. 
And what I want you to recognize is that you cannot be afraid of this experience. The experience of looking at society, your family, stuff that's not working, and taking the time to really weep about what's going on. What's going on in your lives? What's going on with your friends? What's going on with your relationship with your mom? What's going on? And stop just ignoring the the problems that are in your face. And take some time, take some weekend time. Put the football games down. Pray, get your scripture. Recognize what the Lord is saying about the thing. And if you can see sin in yourself, identify it. Get a journal, write it down. Pledge your, that, that, you, that you repent. Think about what you could do differently. And, and because God uses that kind of experience to transform and to build churches and to build families and to build nations. That's what Nehemiah does. So we can't be afraid to go into a time when we really self-reflect and fast and pray so that God can do something first in us, and then once we've been converted and have this burden for righteousness, how we could impact others. Are you with me on that? You need to have a a burden. So the first thing that God does in his provision, the foundational thing, is that he convicts of sin and gives hope for the future. He creates this burden, and he appoints this leader, Nehemiah, to move forward. And once he appoints him, he doesn't leave him alone. He gives him guidance. And the guidance that we see in this narrative from the first caption in Susa in Persia to the next scene when we go to Jerusalem, the first thing way in which God gives him guidance is Scripture. And the next way that he gives him guidance is prayer. Let's look at that. Nehemiah 1 through 8. Scripture. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are from the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. This is his uh, prayer within his prayer to God in chapter one in the capital of Susa. And this sounds eerily familiar to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, right before he, t- he transferred leadership over to Joshua to take the people into Israel. He says this, Moses says, when all the blessings and the curses that are in the law have, come, have been set before you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God with all your heart, One of the things that may indicate mediocrity in what we do for the Lord is half-heartedness. That's why the burden and the fasting in the morning and the praying can take a while. Because God is chipping through a double-mindedness, a half-heartedness, a starting and stopping kind of Christianity, kind of faith that all of us are subject to. God wants that to be stopped, and he wants full devotion to him, just like Jesus displayed full devotion to us on the cross. Come on with me. God has full devotion for me. When I sin, he's already prepared to take me back. And I can feel his approval even after repeated mistakes. He's already ready for that. So he has, he's fully devoted to our growth in him. He's fully devoted to taking those who've come to him in repentance and faith that we would see him in the new Jerusalem. He's fully devoted to that. And he expects then that we would be fully devoted, not half-heartedly devoted to him. If you will come back with all your heart and stop your worshiping other things and stop disobeying my laws. Then the Lord will restore your fortunes and gather you again from all the nations I have scattered you. And when Nehemiah thinks about this, he has hope. Yes, I know the city walls are torn down and the heads of the people are bowed, 
But God has said, if we would get our hearts right, he will restore us. Come on. And that is even true for us today. Because First John tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and, and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants us back. Come on with me. God wants you back. And so if you find yourself kind of strayed away from God, maybe you didn't intend to, you just kind of drifted off, or if you know intentionally that you're living a wayward, wicked kind of life, God is saying he wants you back. You can, he's provided resources for you to come back. Now, guidance, the guidance is found in Scripture. And I know people, sometimes as a pastor, when I have to tell people, you got to know so that you can grow. You got to read your scripture. And people will be like, oh my God, here we go again with another admonition to read the scripture. So as I was thinking about this, I said to myself, man, let me do a real quick inventory. It took me five minutes to just lay out a, a handful of reasons why it is that God would have us read the scripture, why it's so important to get his guidance. It, first of all, it tells us what God is like creator, sustainer, lover of our soul, righteous judge. It tells us what we are like, created in his image, beloved, but faulty and frail and subject to sin, worthy of the death of the son. It tells us what we're like. It tells us that we are forgetful and distracted. And so we need to read the scripture because we forget who we are. We forget what God says. So we should read. It tells us that if you want to know the deepest wisdom available in the world, that's why I love reading the Proverbs, because of its pithy truths that, that have converted my marriage, my business affairs, my relationships, have in, greatly impacted any kind of instruction I give. The deepest wisdom that you can find. If you like deep, wonderful, sometimes mysterious truths that will transform your life, read the word. And God says this, he endorses it. He says, if you read it, I'll bless you. And then you can trust it, that it's reliable. And everything that it talks about, the scripture says it's reliable. God's seal of approval is on it. But I think that there's really just one major reason why you should read. And here it is. It's kind of a selfish reading, reason on the surface. But it's so true. Read the scripture because it will enable you to be what everybody here in this room wants to be, which is successful. Let me break that down. God grants us the guidance to rebuild. Joshua 1.7. I like the new King James version of this. Um, Joshua has been commanded after Moses' death to take the people into Israel. And God has made certain promises to him. But he gives them a condition on his success. And here it is. He says, only be strong and very courageous. We'll see this later when we talk about it takes guts. That you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn it to it from the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. And then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. Now I have a question for you. How many of you want to come to the end of your lives and say, man, I was a failure? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. How many of you want to live, if God gives you 20 or 30 or 60 or 90 years of life, want to come to it, the end of it and say, man, I didn't really do anything worthwhile? Now, I might have went to the Cole Center on Wednesday with my son and, see, and saw the Illinois men's basketball team beat the Badgers 71-7. I might have done that, but really that had no in particular value, no long-term value. I had a lot of distractions. I had a lot of fun, but I didn't do anything worthwhile in our lives. None of us want to have that kind of experience. And so God says to us this. There's this key principle that we have to glob onto, that we have to hold onto. He says to us, success is knowing the word of God and doing it. And you might say to the Lord, that's easy. No, it's not. <laughs> the principle sounds simple. I just got to receive what my parents say as a substitute for God and just do it. 
The problem is when it comes to the scripture is that the book is really big. Come on with me. <laughs> this book, this version of it has over 2,000 pages. Most people, even dedicated Christians, will take a whole year to get through this. And then when it comes to the depth of knowledge, you can have a surface knowledge of the scripture. But you've got to have that thing settled deep into your soul. And that's why he tells him that to meditate on it and to pray over it so that you would deeply understand it and then you will have good success. Now, I've had two kinds of failures in my life when it comes to this instruction. Over my time, over my life, there's been times when I have studied really diligently uh, as a student at Wheaton College and, and studied and, and trained and, and, and got every kind of knowledge, but not been careful enough to apply it. I, I knew a lot of things, but I wasn't careful to obey it, as God tells Joshua to do in this text. And the other times will be, I'll be busy, I'll be active, I'll be doing things at work or with my family, but I, my devotional practices, my study will get lean, and I'll be working hard, but not producing much. But when, this, when you bring these two things together, when you studied carefully, ran into a young man in the uh, restroom just a minute ago, Sean. He came because he wanted to study the new study that, the, that they're doing in the expository Bible study, the inductive study. He says, I studied by myself, but I wanna study with a group of people so I can get a stronger knowledge. And when he takes that knowledge, and says to himself later this night, here's how I can apply this to what I do, and then actually do it on a continuous basis, then you will see good success. In this story of Nehemiah, his ministry expands probably 20 or 30 years, and he needed to be faithful all the way through, not just faithful for a season, and then back to the old ways of idolatry and wickedness. No, he needed to be perseverant. It's perseverant obedience to the word of God and deep understanding of its nuances that will lead you to good success. Come on, talk with me. God will bless his word. He glorifies himself through it, and he glorifies us when we obey it. The second one is he guides us through scripture. Nehemiah 2, 4, and 5. The king said to me, what is it you, you want? Uh, then I prayed. He, he glorifies himself through prayer. Guidance through scripture, first point. Guidance through prayer, second point. So he gets this burden, and he's in the capital, uh, in the vacation uh, uh, home of King Artaxerxes. And God inspires him that he is indeed the man that should go and rebuild the people and rebuild the city. But it's scary because if he goes to the king and the king shuts him down, he could be seen as a rebel and be put to death. So he's rightly scared when he does this, even though God has supported him. Now, come on now, courage is, is when you just do the thing even when you're scared. Sometimes we got to roll with stuff even when you're scared. How many of you have ever had to do that? Come on with me, there should be more hands going up. You've got to roll with stuff that you know is good, even if you know there's potential danger. Trusting, trusting that God is gonna take care of you. And so he's in that situation. And the scripture says, I, in the midst of it, I like this, I like this. I spent so many years um, working in the marketplace, and even now in my counseling ministry and in other times when there's a conflict, right in the middle of the interaction, when the king says to him, I see this girl found her face, he says, Lord, help me. Come on. Lord, I need your help right now. Real quick. And then he goes on and makes his request. Then I pray to the God of heaven, and I answer the king. If it pleases the king, with humility, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked him, how long will your journey take? And, will you get, and when will you get back? And he must have said, I'm a salesman. And that's why all the early clothes. <laughs> he must have been like, oh man, I'm gonna get this sale. 
I've been in so many houses trying to sell insurance, and I can tell when the, when the customer is right ready to go. Oh, when, uh, when, uh, uh, how many months do I have to pay this? When they ask that question, I'm like, I got them now. <laughs> how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set up a time. We're talking about prayer, guidance through prayer. I want to just give you three principles on that that will make your prayer life more impactful. That's my, that's my prayer, is that for you, that prayer won't be, just be a, bore, a burden, it won't just be boring, that it will have real power and real impact the way Nehemiah's prayers were. I love Nehemiah for this reason. Anytime he ran into an obstacle on God's work, right in the middle of the obstacle, he prayed, Lord, these foreign nations, I'm going to go forward and build. You got to have to take care of them. Next subject. Lord, these, these people are taking advantage. We're taking advantage of each other. Lord, help me when I engage the nobles to get their hearts turned back so that they would treat their brothers and sisters fairly. He prays right in the midst of the work, and God answers him right in the midst of the work. God will do that for you as a parent. I've, haven't you had that experience up at 3 or 4 in the morning with your babies? So some of you, uh, uh, the, the Tavers already have children, right? So they've already, the first, they've already seen this. Sometimes you got to pray when you're tired and beat down. Lord, let this child sleep so I can get up and do some productive stuff. And God will answer your prayers in the midst of the work. Pray for matters that are on mission. That's what Nehemiah does. He prays for big things that the mission that God has sent him on would, get, would be accomplished. And Jesus was the best at this because right before he goes to the cross, right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and his enemies come and collect him so that he would go on to the cross, he prays a big prayer. He says this as he concludes his prayer, my prayer is not for them in terms of them being separated unto God. It's not just for these disciples that are here, but it's for us, the mission. We should be praying for the people. In fact, Pastor Nick has been talking a lot about we got to make sure the church is ready 20 years from now when he's not here. We got to be praying for the church of the future. The way the church in Monona was praying for us when they started us in 1960. We got to be praying for the future. And so Jesus is praying for all of us 2,000 years ago. My prayer is not for them alone, but for all of them who will come because of this mission. And he prayed big prayers. We got to be praying mission prayers. I also like the way Pastor Nick says, he says, he says what would, would Jesus' prayer be for you? Well, Jesus is going to have a missional prayer. It's going to be about your, your um, faithfulness to him, your holiness. It's going to be about how consistent you are and, and your deeds or your deeds are like his. It's going to be missional. It's going to matter. So we need to pray for missional things. Second, principle of prayer. Pray because the Lord never forsakes those who seek him. He said it this way. The Psalms 9 and 10 says this. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. One of the things we ought to appreciate the most about God once we come to him in repentance and faith and receive his spirit is that he has got your back and made a promise forever. And when you pray consistently, for things big and small, it demonstrates that you want fellowship with him. One of the greatest privileges that we have is our fellowship with Christ, our, our, our sense of welfare in his presence. And when we pray to God and we don't, which is one of the ways we don't forsake him, he answers and he restores. That's one of the reasons why you need an active, powerful prayer life, that it ought to be a routine because it demonstrates that you have not forsaken him. Last principle, 
Pray because we are not superheroes. We are servants. Nehemiah 1.10 says this. Nehemiah, as he's concluding his prayer and asking God to restore his people, he says, listen, Lord, these are your servants. They are your people whom you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. And one of the difficulties that we can have that God makes us bright and smart and capable, um, sometimes we can be misled into thinking that we can get things done without his help. But the truth is that, that God is the superhero and we are his creation and we need to understand it. And prayer reminds us of our rightful position as his servants. So we need to pray so that we remember that this is his mission. We're his people. And everything where you find yourself trying to work, God has, got, is, has an invested interest in it when you place it before him and do it according to his word. Everything that you're trying to do, whether you think it's big or small, he's got a vested interest and will intercede in your life to help you. God grants us the guidance to rebuild and success is knowing the, the will and the word of God and knowing it. So we turn to scripture and we turn to prayer. Thirdly, God gives us these resources to rebuild and it's a burden uh, guidance and favor. Lord, we need the favor. In 2 and 8, as he is in Susa talking to the king, he says this, Nehemiah. He says, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. It wasn't his reputation as a worker or the successful technique he came up with to ask him, it was because God was behind this whole effort, was behind him as the leader and the effort to rebuild the people. Uh, God's favor was on it. Isn't it wonderful to know that God's divine blessing is on all his children? As I studied this scripture, the reason it says here in, in 2 and 18, the scene actually shifts now, and it's in Jerusalem. And he's trying to convince the nobles and the officials and the average people that they should join him in the work. And as he makes that, uh, that argument to them, uh, he says to them, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. What he's saying is this. He says, God has placed his hand on you. Sometimes we'll bring up deacons or we'll bring up missionaries and we will lay our hands on them to symbolically impart a blessing on them. I remember when I first started out at American Family and I quit my job at Citibank and went to American Family and I, I knew I was going to uh, at least cut my income in half. And I, I didn't have a lot of money in the bank and I didn't come from money. My parents didn't have money. And I had this overwhelming feeling. My dad had died by that time. No, nope, he was still living. I needed a blessing from my parents. I needed a blessing from my mom. So I went to my mom. And I said, Mom, I'm about to quit my job at Citibank. And you know, I'm married. I got this little house here in Westchester. I said, Mom, do you think I could do it? She said, Lord, I know you can do it. I needed a blessing. And so what God is saying to you is this. If you come to him in repentance and faith and receive his spirit, that his hand of divine blessing is on you. And you can do what he wants you to accomplish. His favor is on your life. Jesus put it this way in relation to talking about favor when he talked to his disciples. He said this, he says, I am the vine, I'm the source, and you're the servant, you're the branches. Now, if you remain in me, in terms of my word, in terms of my ways, if you remain faithful to me, and I stay in you, 
Because he's not going anywhere. Jesus is going to be who he is. So if you stay faithful, he says, you will bear much fruit. But if you drift off by yourself, you can do nothing. Because favor follows the faithful. But I found over my life that even though I feel like I'm on God's mission, and I read the scriptures faithfully and try to obey them as best as I can, sometimes the overwhelmingness of the task seems to get into the way. Sometimes there's these great opportunities. And so I would imagine that Nehemiah, when, he, when the Lord said, yes, you can do this thing, he said, oh my God, there are surrounding nations that hate us. Then he went out and surveyed Jerusalem, and there were huge gaps in the wall. And later on, the scripture said there was rubble everywhere. And I, and I would imagine that, that, that he saw this opportunity to restore the people to fellowship with God and to, to restore stuff, but, but, but sometimes it can seem too big. And then other times there's like these challenges, right? It's not obstacles, there's these challenges. My wife's business is at a point where I talked to her yesterday, I said, honey, man, I see that God is blessing you, and yeah, you got competition, it's not that serious, but now she's got issues of, uh, of how much capacity she has. There's challenges, and sometimes the challenges can be so great that you'll just stop in your tracks. You'll be paralyzed in fear, and then other times, then there's just flat-out opposition, but what God is trying to say to you, and sometimes why you have to go in reflection and prayer and deep meditation is to remember who you are and whose you are and that you've got favor. And so even when the task looks awesome, because it is, and even when the task is greater than what you can accomplish, because it is, that, but not when God's favor is with, on you. When his hand of blessing is on you, baby, you can get it done. Favor. Lastly, you got to have guts. Nehemiah, the scene changes. Now he's in Jerusalem. The favor was so great on his life that he didn't just get the things he asked for, building supplies and so forth. The king said, listen, I'll send you a detachment with you. So everybody knows they better not mess with you. So he sends them some soldiers and so forth. On his, the favor is so great, it's even more than you could ever imagine. But he gets to the place, and he's shrewd. He knows that the Samaritans and the Ammonites and the Arabs are not happy. Two, two and ten says that. When they heard about this, they were like, man, our opportunity to take advantage of them is about to be over. He knows the enemies are there. So at night, he goes out and inspects the wall. He inspects it, and then he goes and says this to the people, the nobles and the officials and the average citizens. He says, you see the trouble we are in? And our city lies in ruins and the gates of the city have been burned with fire. But come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in this disgrace. And to convince them, he explains what, what God has been doing up to this point. He says, I told them about the gracious hand of favor of God on me and what the king had said because the gracious hand of God is on me. And then they said, man, God must be with you. Let us rebuild. But what if, what if the people said this? Because if I had been in that crowd, I think I would have been in this category. Come on with me. Nehemiah, you crazy. Don't you see the enemies are all around us? The Ammonites, the Samaritans, the Arabs. And you expect us to stick our neck out? And the king back, yeah, the king in Babylon, but man, he's thousands of miles away. You got to be crazy. We're not going to follow you in this work. And I'm sure he had that in the back of his mind, but he wasn't afraid of that. He, had, he knew not to be afraid of people. How many of us need to know that today? That we have got to regard the Lord and, and not people, not our children, because they don't fully understand what righteousness is. So you gently hold the line, uh, not your boss. 
You're going to do your work and you're going to do it properly, but you are not going to do unethical things and you are not to be afraid and God will back you even if it's at some other employer. You are not to be afraid. And, 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 and this, this principle carries, of course, into the New Testament because uh, when Paul was trying to prepare his young protege to become a pastor in Ephesus, he had to remind him, he said, listen, Timothy, the spirit that God gave us does not make us scared, but it grants us power and love and self-discipline. And when you track the story of Nehemiah, won't you look for evidence of power, of strength in opposition? Won't you look for evidence of love, how he will give the food from his own table to the poor in Jerusalem? Won't you look for, for evidence of self-discipline, how he kept his clothes on, because the warring armies were looking for opportunities, he and his officials were ready for battle all the time with their clothes on. Because the Spirit of the Lord will give us power and love and self-discipline. And sometimes I have to spend all night trying to prepare a message for you because the Spirit has given me power and love and self-discipline to get it done. There's some things you got to do that you know you can't do them. You know you can't do it, but the Lord has given you power and love for people that you don't understand and a self-discipline. And so you can do it. He gives you guts. Do you feel, are you with me? Now, right after the people, with, because of the righteous hand of God is on him, the people are with him. Where is the God's favor? Well, God's favor shows up in the king being on. God's favor shows up in the people cooperating. God's favor shows up in defending him against the opposition. God's favor is throughout this whole book. But when Sambalat the Hornite, he appears to be the leader of um, the Samaritans, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about this, the first thing they do is mock and ridicule them. They say, you little, few little people with no resources, you ain't gonna do nothing. And, so, and then he says, when that didn't work, and they kept building, he said, he began to lie on them. Are you trying to rebel against the king? I just told you, the king sent me. Didn't you see the soldiers with me? I got letters. You got to lie on them. But here's, he answers them. He says this, the God of heaven will give us success. That's why he was on his knees and praying for so many days and got that burden. And that's what the favor that he was seeing as he walked with God was giving him more and more confirmation of what that God was with him as he was walking in faithfulness. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants. We will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim to the history. He says this, but, but, but when Nehemiah says to his does he say this? Does he say, I'm a bad man. I'm a bad man. Don't be messing with me. No, this is crucial because you're not that bad. I know I'm not that bad. After 55 years, I recognize one of the things that fasting and mourning and praying has shown me is I'm not as bad as I thought. But with God, I can do all things through him who strengthened me. He gives glory to God. He doesn't say this, I'm a bad man, don't be messing with me. And we have to watch our arrogance. And we got to give glory to the one who delivers, who created us. No. Nehemiah tells his adversaries this, God is for this, and you got no business interfering with us who are his servants. God is in this. And so we give glory to God. And we recognize that it's God who has given us a longing for flourishing, not us. He gives us the burden. And it's his word and through prayer that he guides us. And man, do you got some favor on you. You better leave with that knowledge today. That if you walk with God, 
you've come to him in repentance and faith, received the Holy Spirit, God's hand of blessing is on you, and he will enable you to do the work he's called you to do, even if it looks hard. Keep going, baby. You're going to get it done. Favor. And then he has courage because you will have opposition. You'll have opposition in your own flesh, Lord, I don't think I can do it. And you'll have opposition, real opposition, as we studied in Ephesians from the Satan and the people he uses to get in the way of the kingdom of God. As I finish the sermon, I want to finish it this way. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. I pray the Lord wanted you to hear what I had to say. I seldom preach and lose track of the time. Uh, that's because the Lord had a message for me, and I hope he had a message for you. Amen. I will end with this. You need to understand that I'm talking about the gospel. Jesus convicts us of sin. That's the burden. His guidance in the scripture is to repent and accept Jesus as Lord. The favor is that he'll forgive you. It don't matter what you did. He'll forgive you. And his spirit will go with you. And lastly, the guts is that you will walk by the spirit. Even when you fall, the guts is you can get up and God will walk you through. Sorry about that, wifey. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, uh, this gospel message from Nehemiah has really pricked my soul. And my prayer is that there would be, for the Christians, that they would be reminded of all they have in Christ and not afraid of the tasks that are before them. And for the non-Christian, my prayer is that they would come through conviction into the kingdom of God, that they can receive all of his blessings of favor and guidance and courage. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.